again, this is the Jim Eskimen Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm a voice artist, actor, artist, all-around kind of creative guy. Um, I've been a professional for, I don't know, about 33, 34 years now at this point. I got my start in New York uh, as a cartoonist, of all things, then graduated into voiceovers of cartoons, mainly, to start with, and then uh, branched off into commercials, and then I became an on-camera talent as well, doing a lot of uh, man-on-the-street interviews for a lot of years, and uh, just any kind of crazy uh, ad that was on uh, on the TV. Did a lot of radio back when radio was a big thing. Then I graduated into doing movies and TV. Uh, and lately, uh, I don't do too much artwork anymore, uh, not professionally anyway, but I do paint it somewhat. And I do a lot of impressions. I do uh, quite a few celebrity voices. I don't even know who this is now. I started to do somebody and that took a hard right turn. Uh, but uh, that's something that I've evolved into. I've sort of got a niche going, I guess you'd say. It's uh, had a strange career. But um, it's the kind of thing that I've embraced uh, wholeheartedly. <laughs> it's uh, just one of those things that you work on as a kid, and then eventually uh, you graduate up into being an adult who uh, actually earns a, a paycheck doing the same sort of things that uh, he's always done even as a boy. That's what I do. It's fun, and I, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of terrific uh, professional people and had a lot of experiences that I think were fun, but it all began in New York for me. That's where I began to, uh, you know, I sort of threw myself into the, the out of the frying pan into the fi- uh, fryer. No, what is, what is the expression? <laughs> out of the frying pan into the fire, of course, because you don't put a frying pan on a fryer. That's a bit redundant or, or sacrilegious if it's that kind of fryer. New York was, for me, in the early 1980s, a great place to, to get into the professional world, uh, it was a time of great activity and and foment and danger. Actually, if you think about it, there was uh, cocaine was burning down sections of the town and the AIDS virus as well. Uh, but I dodged all those things, not being into drugs and uh, uh, being rather monogamous. Uh, so I never really had uh, too much risk there. Uh, lucky thing, knock on wood, and uh, began. Uh, with improv, doing a lot of improv theater, which was, you know, fairly, fairly new, certainly not the big business it is today. There were just a handful of schools and television wasn't betting on improv. There were no improvised shows. There was no who's line. Um, So I I got in on the ground floor of something that uh, was to really dominate quite a bit of my life. And uh, but anyway, talking about New York at that time, very exciting period. And I worked a lot of strange jobs. You know, when you're 20-something and you don't know what you want to do, but you have lots of skills and lots of talents and interests, uh, a town like that, which has such a voracious appetite for new talent and for people with ability and people people who can make a deadline and people that can help you if you have a, you know, you're a manager or you're a creative director, you're looking for people that can bring bright new ideas into your realm and uh, you want to leech off them as much as possible. And a young person just wants to be leeched off of. Desperately, you know, want to be utilized. And I was really, really, really hungry to be to be used in a good way and uh, or a bad way. It didn't matter to me. I just wanted to be, you know, have some activity going on. And it was a great place to do that because at that time there was just a heck of a lot going on. It was just pre-digital everything. 
I actually saw the digital age arrive, basically, in New York, which it did in the form of uh, digital audio editing equipment. I, I saw some of that early stuff and went, wow, what is this, man? This is intelli intelligent stuff, man. I couldn't figure it out, but I wasn't an editor at that time anyway. Anyway, New York for me sort of was the crucible uh, in which I forged a lot of my later uh, philosophies and uh, of work and early relationships that led to you know, wonderful long-standing uh, friendships and, and projects and so forth. And I'll always be grateful and, you know, a bit sentimental like people get about about places and things. New York will always be a definitely a home to me. We were just there recently. But I will just tell you briefly some things that I think might be of value to you and of interest to you and vis-a-vis -vis, uh, my period in New York and, uh, and what it meant to me in my later years what it still means to me. So I was on 57th Street with my wife. We were staying. Big shout out to the Peninsula Hotel on 55th and 5th Avenue. Boy, it's expensive, but it's worth every penny. Gorgeous hotel. It's been there since um, the early, early part of the last century, I think like 1904 or something. And they, they've they kept it up and renovated it. And it's beautiful. Staff is really nice. I mean, the doormen were some of the friendliest doormen I've ever seen. And they're not just, you know, they don't just want the five bucks. They're being very, they're just legitimately friendly people, the ones I saw. Anyway, we're cruising around 57th Street a lot. I love 57th Street. Hey, here's a bit, here's a factoid. Uh, if you know 57th Street in New York City, you know it's, it's a great walking street. Well, in a few years' time, I'm told, they're going to shut down traffic completely and make it entirely a walking street. How about that? I, and I think that'll be great. Um, I don't know what the hell it's going to do to the traffic flow. <laughs> Hopefully they don't, you know, take out a huge swath of Central Park just a few blocks away. No, I don't think they would. But um, yeah, so 57th Street, going to be a walking street. Great street to walk on already, though. Nice big sidewalks. And several significant things have happened to me there. Uh, one was that I, I reconnected with some a great contact that was to really to change my life. Uh, I had uh, met a guy named Steve Reckschaffner who was the young uh, wunderkind marketing uh, guy for Swatch Watch. Swatch Watch at that time was the kind of hip uh, fashion watch, cheaply produced Swiss mechanism, so it was very accurate, uh, but very, very cheap and very kind of trendy and could move swiftly, could bob and weave with fashion and was just perfect. Uh, kind of uh, thing for the 80s, you know. It also fit the 80s aesthetic very well, this kind of uh, high-tech, low-tech thing that was going on then, bright colors and, and poppy kind of things. Anyway, I had connected with this guy, Steve Reckschaffner, by, purely by, I don't know, uh, kismet, I guess they call it. Um, I went and accompanied my mother to uh, a celebrity ski event that she invited us to in Colorado that was sponsored in part by Swatch Watch, or maybe entirely by Swatch Watch. And Steve was there, and I met Steve, and I did a little performance there with my mom. I did some impressions to a bunch of people, and there were quite a few celebrities and people there, and Steve was like, man, that's great, you know, and we, we had a little friendship, very brief, and he gave me his card. I lost that card immediately. And so went away from Colorado, and walking down 57th Street, who do I see? Steve Reckschaffner. And I stopped him and I went, oh, this is my second chance. Thank God. So I made an appointment. I showed him my portfolio at the time. And from that moment on, he and I started working together. Uh, and he was good for quick, 
uh, whenever I called him up just to say hi, he would say, I wonder, could you come down? We're looking for, and he, and he would find something for me to do. I drew for them. The first thing I did was write for them. I wrote captions on some t-shirts they had and and then I drew things, and I would do the little cartoons on the back of some of their Swatch products to explain how you put this wristband on and, you know, wh- why this bag was multipurpose. And, you know, it, I drew little people doing things. And, and you know, they didn't have a lot of fuss. And <laughs> like so many of the companies I've worked for, they just would look at it and go, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and, they'd, and they'd print a million of them and uh, pay me 300 bucks. You know, that was fine. It was totally fine for me. And then we, we worked together on developing a character that he saw uh, in his mind called Dr. Swatch, who would go around and go into stores, and we would do videos and so forth. And Dr. Swatch was first conceived of to be a kind of a puppet, uh, not a human actor, but a kind of a puppet. And I designed that puppet and then we we're trying to sort that out and get it produced and get it created and plan the video. And finally, Steve turned to me and said, you know, I think you're Dr. Swatch. I think, you know, we put you in a white lab coat and put some glasses on you. So I became Dr. Swatch. We jettisoned the, the puppet idea. And I went on to do videos and tour around. And it, it really gave me quite a bit of stability. It was uh, super fun to do, real creative. And it used my improv skills. So 57th Street to me will always mean that, and it'll also mean a very quiet moment that I had coming out of, early on before I met Steve, when I was just getting started, really, really raw there, uh, but looking for work as an actor and, you know, going to auditions and meeting with agents and feeling kind of desperate and feeling, you know, the weight of of poverty and (laughs) all those delicious, nostalgic things that... uh, older actors talk about. And I was walking along the street on 57th with somebody, I wish I remembered who, but he was another wannabe actor, disgruntled, kind of maybe a little bit more beaten up than I was. And I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be a voiceover actor. And he said something like, oh, well, good luck. You know, I mean, the same five guys do everything and it's super competitive. And I realized I stopped on the street and I, was so, I had the presence of mind to recognize that, wow, I've heard quite a few people utter this same sentiment, that it's a closed field, that it's already locked up, that five or six guys do everything, and that you can't do it. I've heard it so many times, I think it's probably false. Which was interesting looking back, you know, because you could just as easily feel the opposite. You could say, I've heard this so many times must be true. But it was so negative and so unproductive and so kind of, I don't know, soul-robbingly final, like, you may not pass. You shall not pass! That I realized, I don't think it's true, at least not in my case. So I made a conscious effort or decision, let's say, not really effort, but made the conscious decision at that point to disagree with that statement and that thereafter I would disagree with it in my mind, quietly to myself. I wasn't going to get in big rhubarbs or fights with anybody, but I just decided that, uh, yeah, it's not true for me, that. And within a couple years, it did take a couple years, but steadily rising and gaining all the way, I became one of those 10 or so, or I would say probably 20 or so people that was making a good living off of radio and voiceovers. There wasn't much animation at the time. Uh, 
in New York. And I was amongst the top of the top, you know, two years time, which is not bad. And for the rest, so I was in New York for 10 years. So I would say seven of those 10 years, I was enjoying a very, very healthy voiceover career. Would I have enjoyed that if I'd said, nah, you're right, probably too tough to get into. Five guys only. Hmm. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. I mean, that would take the wind out of your sails for sure. And it would influence a lot of your future. You know, anytime you agree with something that's going to be an excuse or a reason why you can't expand into an area or excel or win or succeed in any agree, to, to any degree, anytime you agree with someone else's sort of kicked in the head viewpoint, which may have resulted from their own, you know, bad, unethical behavior. You don't know. You know, somebody just makes a comment. You don't know where that came from. Could come from their, the, the failed adventures of their father passed down to the son. And then hopefully, you know, they hope passed down to you so that you'll fail too and get to join their club of disgruntlement. Uh, you don't know where that came from. So the more you disagree with that, not remembering exactly how I started this sentence, uh, the more you disagree with that, the better, because you can then make your own decision about it, and create your own future. And that's a very wise thing to do. And I, I'm glad that I stumbled on that wisdom. And it was on 57th Street, which may, by the time you listen to this, who knows, be a walking street entirely. Man, won't that be exciting? I'm like a big mall. Man, incredible. Uh, 57th Street also has a fantastic little underground cafe that I got to recommend called Eight and a Half. And it just happens to be in the basement of 9 West 57th Street. So that's why it's Eight and a Half. Cute. And you go downstairs there. 9, I'll never forget that building because it's it used to be called the Grace Building. Maybe it still is. You know, sometimes they change names of buildings if uh, somebody buys the sign or whatever. But it's this kind of curved building. It has curves gently, the whole building down to the ground floor. And, uh, and there's a big red nine, like big, like maybe it's 15 feet high, a massive sculptural red nine. So maybe, maybe that tweaks your memory. You've probably seen it. Uh, and down below, go down the elevator, down the stairs, go in the building and down the stairs, there's eight and a half brasserie or something. It's, it's a great little, oh man, it looks like it's right out of Mad Men. It's just two beautiful bars and these booths and tables and Good food, reasonably priced. My wife and I, we had a lovely post-anniversary dinner there. So I recommend Eight and a Half. If you go to Manhattan, treat yourself. Pretend you're a big Madison Avenue executive and his, and his hot date. So 57th Street. You know, it's funny how different areas give you different bits of nostalgia. Of course, you know, there are probably places where I wouldn't want to go, that I have bad experiences. But they are always rebuilding in Manhattan and now the West Side is is becoming the new financial district. All sorts of buildings are going up there. Odd-looking buildings, buildings you're like, really? That's gonna that's gonna stay up? Skinny, skinny buildings. I mean, I guess they're just so efficient now with architecture. They can build a building that looks like a slender Jenga tower of condominiums, and uh, hopefully, you know, nobody will pull out that main main condo and let the whole thing go down um, too soon. Still too soon to make a joke like that. But anyway, very impressive architecture going on there. And Manhattan is just, it's just alive. What I love about it is that, amongst the many things, is that unlike L.A., 
it's not really a one or two industry town. It's a every industry town. It's an every race town. It's an every financial layer level town. It's it's every business, every government, every every aberration certainly, every uh, but also every every bit of genius and new genius things emerging every day. So you can walk down the street and make discoveries that will quite literally change your life, just like when I ran into Steve Rechschaffner um, on that day. And Steve, wherever you are, I love you, man. You helped me out a lot. Today I uh, worked on a, a, a new television series, animated television series, that also began for me not far from 57th Street in New York City when I was the senior character designer in all my 25 years of the uh, Thundercats, the original Thundercats animated show. I got hired by Jules Bass himself of Rankin Bass, lovely man who I I respected very much, very creative man, very artistic man. And uh, I I did character design for this new show, Thundercats, they were doing. And that was where I really became a kind of a stable professional illustrator in New York, which gave me a lot of stability, a lot of peace of mind. Also, I learned that, hey, boy, being behind the mic, that's the job. That's what I wanted to do, doing animation voices by watching the great uh, Bob McFadden and uh, uh, Earl Hyman and Earl Hammond and Larry Kenny and uh, Peter Newman and all those terrific actors that were doing the original Thundercats. And now I've uh, gotten onto the latest iteration which is, uh, and I can't say too much about it yet. It's called Thundercats Roar. It's being done by Cartoon Network. Uh, there was an earlier iteration also, uh, just, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, called Thundercats that Warner Brothers did, which was a beautiful, beautiful anime show. Uh, and the showrunner, main illustrator guy, Daniel Norton, did a fantastic job. It was a gorgeous show. And it was um, canceled after two seasons because I guess I heard they didn't sell enough toys which I, I guess is the actual purpose of animated TV, uh, selling toys or breakfast cereal or costumes or something like that. It's a pity because it was, in and of itself, it was a gorgeous, gorgeous show, really well done. Anyway, this show, I don't know what they're trying to sell. I don't know what we're selling, but I play a role in it, a featured role. I play, uh, I can't tell you. I guess I can't, I can't tell you. I don't know, but <laughs> you'll, you'll be able to see it soon. By soon, I mean possibly this year, but more likely in 2019. Uh, But it's great to be part of the franchise again. It's funny how you stumble into something and then it can just flare up again like a a swamp fire in some other location. And uh, it's fun. It's fun to be be part of it. I definitely am grateful to the Thundercat Empire. And uh, so that's kind of cool. It's fun to work with a new set of uh, voice actors, too. There's some very talented people who, you know, I know them so little. We've only done a couple of, we did the pilot and we did an episode today together. uh, And I've not learned all their names, but I will. And they're all a lot more famous than I am as voiceover people. They go to conventions and are always meeting fans and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm not not at that level and not all that interested, frankly. But I, I do like meeting and seeing new talent, particularly voice actors. It's interesting. A particular kind of people... They're sometimes sort of shy. Uh, they're very inventive. They, they know about their own voice and they know characters and they, they, they're a very special kind of person that likes to project character through that channel. They're often 
very often not the same people that appear in movies or on TV. They, they are behind the microphone. They are not interested in having you see them necessarily unless you're meeting them at a Comic-Con or something. They're, uh, they're more like they want to act through that vocal channel mainly, best of all. And I understand that. You know, I, I really do. There's a lot, a lot of freedom there. And, uh, you know, you can tell some of them are not that comfortable with the way they look. You know, they look a little odd or they don't look like the characters they portray. That's, that's a kind of a tradition, I think, of radio. It's like I, I, immediately comes to mind William Conrad, the great William Conrad, who was in Gunsmoke all those years, I guess, I mean, probably decades, and played detectives and hard-boiled characters of one character or another, and, you know, was quite overweight and, uh, you know, flabby, and uh, later on was in the, the TV series Canon, where he played an overweight detective, which was a perfect blend of his skill set. Uh, but it's fun. I love to meet these people and get to know them a little bit, and we make each other laugh, and we do voices, and somebody yanks out an accent or an impression, and it's like, oh, yeah, I admire that. We we're all, we all dig that. That's 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 kind of like the basketball game. We all like to play together and shoot hoops together in that way. Uh, that's my full con- and only connection to basketball is through the world of animation, where where there is no basketball essentially. I also did a video game. I worked twice today, which is nice. I like working a couple jobs in a day. That's fun, uh, and it's not saying much because the real guys, the real guys that are doing this full on, the Fred Tattashores. And uh, Scott Menville's and oh, so many guys I could name that I love. They are just going from place to place. And they probably do, I don't know, five, six, eight shows a week, different games. Anyway, I did a couple jobs today. One was a video game. Uh, Hearthstone, I believe it's called. And it was an odd kind of video game. And I wound up doing several voices, one of which was a chicken. You know, so I was sort of taking a page out of uh, the great Frank Welker's book today, desperately trying to access the chickens and roosters that I've heard in my life. And getting them to speak and react and stuff. And getting them irate. And and that was fun. That was super fun. If you don't know Frank Welker, uh, Frank Welker is a phenomenon. He started off as a, as a stand-up comic and an actor and uh, graduated, I guess, into doing stuff for Hanna-Barbera. And he was a early, early member of the cast of Scooby-Doo and the original one and then every subsequent one and uh, playing a variety of roles. And he and I met on uh, in early 93... I want to say, uh, on a Johnny Quest uh, spinoff or a redo uh, of the Johnny Quest series that was being done at Hanna-Barbera, which was still there, still operating. And he was doing Bandit, of course, the dog. He's become the uh, animal expert, animal creature uh, expert and a, a lot of movies. If you IMDb Frank Welker, you will find just an endless list of, of animals and creatures that he's voiced. Um, some arcane, some beloved. He and I also were in that other Talking Pig movie of 1994, maybe. Uh, there was a movie called Babe, which of course won Oscars. And then there was a movie called Gordy, which was an, an unanimated or un-CGI augmented uh, uh, talking pig movie that Frank Welker and I both worked on. Uh, we were, I think, though, that he also worked on 
on the famous one. But um, anyway, Frank Welker, well, I'll never forget my Frank Welker story. I've worked with him many times and, and it's always a great pleasure. He's a very, he's a gentleman. He's a warm human being. And he's just got this crazy, silly talent for doing animals, all kinds. Um, anyway, we were doing this Johnny Quest show and I was playing a Russian submarine captain or maybe it was a whaling boat captain or something. Anyway, we were hunting whales and they, they, we obviously were the bad guys of this show. And uh, Frank was tasked with uh, doing the whales, the sound of the whales. And the opening scene was uh, we see these baby beluga whales playing in the surf and maybe not the surf, but maybe maybe offshore. And the baby beluga whales get trapped in a net and they are crying out to their mother as they're struggling with the net. And so that sound <laughs> has to be done by somebody. It's not just they don't just pull that up out of the, oh, yeah, we got that in a file somewhere. No, baby beluga whales, really? You might have a can of beluga caviar, but you don't have that sound. So everyone turns to Frank Welker and lets him do his thing. And he created the sound of a beluga whales struggling in a net and bleating pathetically for their mother. And we all went, yep, that's what it would sound like. And that's why he has continued to work. He doesn't, I'm sure he doesn't need to anymore, but uh, the great Frank Welker. How'd I get talking about him? I forget, but, um, oh yeah, I was taking a page out of Frank Welker's book today doing my chicken. That was a lot of fun. Tomorrow I go and work on some more KFC spots. I'm doing a Colonel Sanders voice. If you've heard on the radio in recent years, uh, last two years primarily, and you've heard someone who sounds like this advertising KFC, it's finger licking good, then uh, that was me. I've made a collection in my life of voices that I like and that just sort of stick in my head. Any artist of any ilk, you know, uh, jazz musicians, I imagine, rock and roll guys, uh, probably even opera singers, keep in their minds uh, models of things that they admire or that they aspire to. I'm no different, but in my way, I've kept little vocal recordings in my mind uh, of in interesting individuals, people from foreign countries, people with different accents or peculiarities with their voice that I draw upon, you know, celebrities or whatever. And uh, uh, for better or for worse, I've, I've made my living in recent years drawing out those files and presenting them. And the Colonel, Colonel Sanders, was one I had in my head since my youth when he did commercials. I always felt like, you know, he was so homespun and so unaffected and, uh, you know, unsophisticated. I always felt like he lived just down the street, you know, and there was a KFC down the street. I thought, well, maybe he shows up in there. I don't know. It's possible. I saw a guy with a white coat there once, you know, so that was a great, uh, a great legacy of that character. But anyway, it left a mark in my brain. I always knew his voice. And so when I knew they were looking for uh, the colonel again, I went, I got this. I got this. <laughs> and a lot of people, it's interesting that a lot of people made, I think, the, the error of in trying to do the colonel voice uh, because he's known as a Kentucky colonel. They tried to make him Southern. But of course, he wasn't actually himself. He moved to Kentucky later in life. And never did sound like he was from the South at all. He just sounded like he was from Indiana, which is where he's from. So uh, he did live in Tennessee for a short while and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I had that. I got that right. So I'm proud of it. Proud. There you go. Well, 
I don't know what this podcast means to you. I really don't know if it's of interest to you at all, but if you're a voice artist or know somebody who's interested in animation and voices and stuff, uh, perhaps it'll be of interest to you. Otherwise, maybe you maybe you've just been following me for one reason or another, for which I'm very grateful and very surprised. I have a YouTube channel, which you might have seen some of my uh, viral or my very unviral videos, of which I have many. Uh, I have a series going on right now, one video a day at least, one video a day, and that, that one video is always, to start your day, is the Celebrity Fortune Cookie, where I spin a wheel uh, with celebrity names on it, open up a fortune cookie at random, and read the fortune in the style of whatever celebrity uh, is chosen by the wheel. And lately I've been doing Star Wars characters, so just for some fun. So I'm going to do that every day for 365 days. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. I hope I'll have something more interesting to tell you next week. In the meantime, be well, be creative, and I will talk to you soon.